0: Welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. I just finished a fascinating Skype interview with Dr. Albert Park, who, along with David Yu, edited a uh, a volume entitled Countering Modernity, Christianity, East Asia, and Asian America. Uh, This is a really fascinating book that is looking at how uh, Christians in China, Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, as well as people of uh, East Asian descent in the United States, have used uh, or have, through Christianity, tried to uh, deal with modernity, uh, how it's, how modernity has shaped their ideas and how they've tried to um, make sense of the changes that go around them, make sense of their own lives through Protestant Christianity. And in many ways, this is a very important book, uh, both because of its scope, because it's bringing together all these people working on these different regions in Asia. And, and the fact that they also included the United States is, I think, particularly fascinating. Uh, in this period from the 19th century to today. So it ranges in articles from uh, things on late 19th century Korea to Korean megachurches, to how the um, Christianity is portrayed in the media in China uh, today. So very, very important in terms of scope. But it's also really interesting in the fact that it's trying to talk about how Christianity interacts and how Christians interact with the world around them. So it's not just talking about doctrines, but how those doctrines and how those are, um, are applied by Christians in political, economic, and social spheres. And uh, for this interview, I'll just be talking to Dr. Albert Park. We'll be talking about this book, how it came about, and also about um, his article, which is on this late 19th, early 20th century uh, Protestant Chris- Christianity in Korea, and how that influenced economics, and uh, especially how Koreans thought uh, about capitalism and how they thought about money. So uh, I think it's a really interesting uh, interview. I think Dr. Park has a lot of interesting things to say, and I hope that you'll enjoy it. Welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Roush of Lander University, the host of the channel. We'll be talking to Dr. Albert Park about his new book, Encountering Modernity, a collection of articles he edited with Dr. David Yu. Uh, Dr. Park, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, hi, hi, Frank, thank you for having me on.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on. well, I'd, we'd like to begin the interview by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure, no problem. Um, so I'm an assistant, well, no, I'm <laughs> not an assistant anymore. Um, right. I'm an associate professor now at uh, Claremont McKenna College. Uh,
0: yes, congratulations. Thank you,
1: thank you. I know, so like it's kind of, I had the mindset for eight years of just being assistant, so it's just natural to say assistant, but uh, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm an assistant uh, associate professor of history at uh, Claremont McKenna College, which is just outside of Los Angeles. So I've been here about eight years, and I came here from Chicago. Uh, I did my graduate work at the University of Chicago in the Department of History. Actually, I did most of my work in Chicago. I did my undergrad actually at Northwestern, and just the, my. I spent one year at Columbia doing my master's, but other than that, I pretty much I had been spending my whole time in Chicago. I was born and raised in Chicago too. So. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, I uh, uh, completed my graduate work in 2007, came here, and yeah, and, and um, teaching history. I teach mostly uh, classes on East Asian history, uh, specifically on Korea and Japan. And my research interests um, are, you know, quite diverse. But particularly, I would characterize myself as a uh, intellectual historian. Um, so, an intellectual historian of, of East Asia, Korea, Japan, specifically. And over the last, uh, let's say, geez, since my start of graduate school, I've been particularly looking at religion, and particularly in religion looking at christianity in korea and in east asia and particularly looking at how um ideas christian ideas and practices have been shaped in relation to political economic and social processes And so, um, as an intellectual historian, I'm just very interested in Christianity as a system of knowledge and belief and see how it is, how it has been uh, constructed and reconstructed in the East Asian uh, context. So I wouldn't, in the end, consider myself a uh, uh, historian of religion or historian of Christianity. I'm more just of an intellectual historian with a special interest in religion and Christianity.
0: Well, that, that's a particularly fascinating because I, I, that kind of dovetails with a large part of what this book is trying to do, it seems to me, is to try and say Christianity is something that people should consider in terms of history, um, even if you're not a church historian.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, my work as well as um, this book really does, um, well, it really wants to show people that, you know, yeah religion um, has a very special place in the East Asian uh, context in that uh, religion has played a fundamental role in informing other forms of knowledge, other belief systems, practices, structures, economic, political, um, uh, cultural structures. And religion, and specifically Christianity in East Asia, has played an important role in informing people's lives, ideas, practices, structures uh, uh, under modernity. Um, So as people in East Asia experience the onset of modernity and modernization programs, um, they turn to religion as a way to negotiate those new processes coming out of modernity and modernization. And you, what you often see is that uh, people who identify themselves as maybe Christian, Buddhist, or a shaman uh, or follower of shamanism, any any follower of religion, as they were using religion or relying on religion to negotiate modernity and modernization, in some ways their thought processes, their practices, um, their ideas were no different than, I would say, um, certain leftists, um, certain conservative figures, people who wouldn't identify themselves as religious figures. So, yeah, in many ways, um, my work is really trying to show how uh, religion is not something just for religious people. It's it's certainly something that has affected and impacted people beyond religious circles. And people should be, I think, greatly interested in that.
0: And is that what your dissertation...
1: I'm sorry, I couldn't hear that for a second.
0: <laughs> oh, is that what your dissertation was on? Oh, so
1: my dissertation... Which um, is now the basis for my book, which is going to come out in January, um, really does look at how religious ideas, uh, specifically Christianity, um, inform these, um, uh, these religious figures to uh, become social activists in trying to build a new world. Uh, during the 1920s and 1930s Korea, specifically trying to build a new world in, re- in reaction to um, the onset of capitalism, how capitalism was um, greatly affecting the, the countryside. And so uh, what these religious figures wanted to do essentially is somehow… Um, address those issues that were coming out of capitalism, meaning inequality, class issues, and so forth. So they first developed these new religious ideas that tell followers that it's okay and it should be something that they should do in the sense that they should uh, go out in the world and try to create a better world, and alongside creating these new ideas to um, tell followers to be basically more like social activists, um, these religious figures then start their own movements, these rural reconstruction movements to create these modern agrarian societies. Uh, modern agrarian societies, not modern industrial societies because they are very critical of industrialization and various types of industrial uh, types of industrial capitalism. Um, so they went on and tried to build these type of um, ideal rural communities anchored by cooperatives, um, anchored by these new model villages and and so forth. So, yeah, so very much, I mean, very much uh, my dissertation and my book um, really shows how um, these religious movements um, started in response to modernity, just like how leftist movements or even right-wing movements started in relation to modernity so it's a real it's it's a book the dissertation and the book is really talking about how all these figures are very similar from the left to the right with religious uh, figures in the sense that they're all trying to deal with modernity. How do you negotiate modernity? And it just so happens religious figures turn to religion and their religious (laughs) ideas to help them deal with modernity. And, you know, something we could talk about later, which, you know, at that time, a lot of people were saying, of course, that modernity and uh, religion do not go hand in hand. You can't be modern and religious. And one of the key things that these figures that I started trying to do are saying, yes, absolutely, you can. You can be religious and a modern. Uh, It's just the way you define modernity. And uh, they defined it in a certain way that would make room for religion. So, yeah, so very much the edited book is kind of in uh, very much related to my uh, book and my dissertation.
0: That's really interesting, uh, because, again, that's what seems to me really fascinating, this idea that can be modern. So, uh, with that being said, how did you come then to edit uh, Encountering Modernity with Dr. David Yu?
1: Yeah. So, um, when I arrived at Claremont McKenna, my position came with programming uh, funding. Um, funding that was uh, given to us by the Henry Luce Foundation. So my position was actually created by the Henry Luce Foundation. And um, every year, I was given a certain amount of money to do various types of programming. And I thought, um, what better way to use the money than hold a conference? Um, Of course, I held talks and various other activities, but I saved quite a deal, quite a, a large amount of money for this conference. And When I started thinking about what I wanted to do specifically, at that time, of course, I was revising my dissertation, trying to turn it into a a book manuscript, and so I was very much interested in issues of Christianity and Christianity in relation to um, uh, political, economic, social structures under modernity. So I thought, well, let's let's hold a conference on that. Specifically, let's hold a conference on how religions, uh, particularly Christianity, uh, have dealt with modernity, and how they how has this happened not only in how did this happen not only in Korea but how did this happen in Japan and in China? Uh, just to make it more interesting, I thought it, we should look at it cross culturally. How basically Um, uh, Christian groups, uh, Christian leaders, missionaries, and so forth, uh, dealt with modernity since the late 19th century up to the contemporary period uh, in East Asia, China, Japan, and Korea, because what you see is there are a lot of uh, similarities in the way they dealt with modernity, uh, but there's also differences. Of course, those differences um, stem from local histories, local cultures, how they influence Christian ideas and uh, Christian structures. So uh, knowing that there is this kind of, um, uh, there was this dynamic, meaning there was this uh, kind of drive to use Christian ideas and practices to deal and negotiate modernity in East Asia. Well, I thought it'd be interesting to try to um, compare the movements and the trends and the processes so um, so I invited uh, quite a number of people uh, to this conference um, from various backgrounds of course um, who study Chinese uh, Christianity, Japanese Christianity and Korean Christianity um, and not only Christianity in East Asia but also scholars who study Christianity in Asia-America and that's where um, David David Yu's expertise came along um, so, you know, helped out very much in terms of um, helping to kind of think about how Christianity has been dealt with and negotiated within Asian-American communities because he is a uh, one of the leading scholars of um, Asian-American history. Who You know, he used to be my colleague here at CMC, but he's now at UCLA. And so we got together with these um various scholars that we invited and held a conference here in february two thousand ten and um from that point on we um over the years have been working to make this into an edited volume and it just came out last march march. 2014. So it, it took a number of years, almost four years, to actually get the volume together. But um, yeah, it, it it actually just started with um, this this uh, programming money um, that we got here at Luz Foundation, and I wanted to do something with it. Um, and you know, really, also if you think about it, I wanted to um, do a conference that. Um, spoke about Christianity, studied Christianity uh, in different ways, and I'm sure you're familiar with this. I mean, because your work deals with this as well. I mean, when we think about Christianity in Korea, it's often been studied in very particular ways. Um, one, it's pretty much been studied by and studied by missionaries, let's say, for example, and the sons of Former, sons and daughters of former missionaries, um, and you know, um, they've had a particular way of analyzing Christianity in Korea. Uh, often in the case, we've seen that um, you know, uh, history books, articles written by people from the uh, religion side, let's say missionary side or within the church himself, often write with the purpose of kind of uh, trying to refine or better or advanced um, Christian practices, like for example, how do you proselytize better, or how do you do this better to advance your missions? And that's fine, I mean, I'm just kind of describing one line of historiography that had a certain distinct purpose of advancing Christianity. Um, And so you have that line of historiography. Then you have another line where, I mean, again, you're familiar with this. Um, In Korea as well, outside of Korea, there's this kind of uh, mythology about Christianity, always talking about how Protestant Christians um, uh, kind of rebelled against Japanese imperialism and how um, there were these heroic figures against um, the aggressions, um, um, Japanese aggressions, and not only Korean Christian leaders, but also, um, uh, missionaries. And so, um, and, and it's certainly in the case, you do find a number of examples where you do find Korean Christians and missionaries who spoke out against Japanese imperialism, but that's not necessarily something that, uh, can, be something that can be said about all Korean Christians or all missionaries. Um, So what ends up happening is you have this idea where it's just the Korean church against Japanese imperialism and essentially Christianity is all about promoting Korean nationalism, which um, again happened, I I guarantee that's something that definitely happened, but When you focus on that alone, there's other things that are left out, other uh, stories left out. But well, there were some missionaries who supported imperialism, there were Korean Christians who supported Japan ultimately, even a figure that I studied, Shinong Wu, ultimately supports Japanese imperialism in the early 40s, even though he was very critical of it early on. Um, So um, not only stories about missionaries and Korean Christians supporting it, um, Japanese imperialism, but you also have these stories about Korean Christians really trying to negotiate modernity, uh, particularly how do you deal with capitalism? Um, sure, capitalism is being mediated by Japanese imperialism, and what you started to see on a day-to-day kind of basis was that capitalism was doing a lot of things to people, meaning in some cases it was rich in people's lives, but it was also causing this mass inequality, disparity of wealth, uh, poverty, and so forth. And so you have these Korean Christians who are very much interested in nationalism, but that's not their sole mission in life is to be these great nationalist figures. Well, they start to think, well, we have to deal with capitalism. We have to deal with modernization. We have to deal with these issues of modernity. So um, so I, th- I, I often think those people are very interesting to study and unfortunately in the historiography, if it's set up in a way where it says that Koreans were only interested about political nationalism, then those people who were not necessarily in that category, who were always on the forefront of criticizing Japanese imperialism, um, their stories kind of be are kind of left out. So uh,
0: or they're criticized. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: definitely. Yeah, they're they're criticized <laughs> exactly right. Um, they're definitely criticized. They're they're kind of not only criticized but they're just left out right <laughs> of the whole yes. history. And um, you know that's and I think that doesn't do much justice to Korean Christianity because as you know, you know, when you talk about Catholicism or Protestant Christianity, it's so rich and diverse and, um, you know, you want a complete story, so you do want them to study those figures who are really interested about this question about this thing called modernity, you know, and of course, modernity is being negotiated by and filtered by colonialism and imperialism, but you know, I, I talked to one scholar, um, about this. And he said, well, you know, back then, not everyone woke up, you know, people didn't wake up every morning and say, oh, I'm being colonized, I'm being, um, uh, I'm under the colonization of Japan, um, I'm under Japanese imperialism, they didn't necessarily wake up like that. They often woke up and said, well, how am I going to deal with this problem today, this social issue, this struggle, this everyday problem? Um, that may have been um, produced by the forces of capitalism, for example. And so, um, Korean Christians were trying to deal with those everyday questions. And so, that's what I was trying to do with this um, conference, is how did Christians in China, Japan and Korea deal with these everyday problems, issues that are arising because of modernity and modernization?
0: Yeah, that's a. It's a really fascinating story that's being told in in the introduction um, to your piece. And you just mentioned you did China, uh, Japan, and Korea were included. Could you give us a little more of idea of the scope? Who else and uh, what kind of themes were included in this uh, edited volume?
1: Sure. Um, so it's it's uh, it's uh, it's pretty comprehensive book in the sense that we try to cover all three countries and Asian america and, in fact, Taiwan, too. So, um, so we have a number of articles, of course, on Korea and uh, not only do you have my article that talks about the relationship between capitalism and religion, but then you have uh, uh, Eun Young Lee Easley's article about uh, neoliberalism and the transformation of the uh, evangelicalism and Korean churches in the 1990s up to the contemporary period. Um, You also have, in this book, um, Chang Kyu-sik, a professor in Korea uh, talking about uh, Choman-sik and um, his relationship, connection to the YMCA in Pyongyang, and talking about how chong uh, man Shik tries to create this new civil society, this new Christian-based civil society. Um, then you have uh, another article by uh, Pak Yun-jae, um, another scholar from Korea. So we, what we tried to do in this conference was to invite people outside the United States. And that's what we did with uh, Park Yun-jae and chang gyu Shik
0: very important.
1: Yeah, I mean, and their work is really well known in Korea um, in terms of the study of Christianity. Park particularly jae particularly in um, the medical history uh, in relation to missionary developments. And chang yu Shik always talks about uh, nationalism and Christianity, uh, but in a very nuanced way. So I've always respected his work. But um Pakin article is really fascinating, really talking about the politics of Developing um, and sustaining Severance Hospital, which you know of course is part of Yonsei today, but um, it was a very um, kind of um, controversial origins, meaning there was a lot of conflict uh, um, in the construction of Severance Hospital and sustaining it. And Tak Yun Jae particularly talks about how um, there were figures in the hospital, uh, some missionaries who thought that they were doing too much social work and not enough proselytization and then right. there were these other figures saying no we're you know we're we're here as doctors to train other Koreans how to become doctors trained in western medicine and how to and we're here to help people help them physically as well as spiritually um, so attend to their mind and body so what Park and Jay's article is fascinating. It really does show that conflict between, I would argue, proselytization or social activism. Um, that debate, what should be emphasized in the missionary circle. So, that was on um, Park and Jay's article. And then David Yu's article on Korea looks at um, um, uh, Korean Americans in Hawaii, and particularly how they start to rely on Christianity to develop certain nationalistic ideas, but also how Christianity uh, in Hawaii uh, creates these networks, uh, relationships, institutions that can sustain the Korean Americans um, in Hawaii. So you have these number of Korean related articles, but you also have many articles on Japan, where Mark Mullins talks about uh, Kagawa uh, Toyohiko, the well-known social activist, Christian social activist in Japan, talks about his trips to the United States and uh, how he's trying to communicate new messages about Christianity, trying to educate the American public about what. Christian social activism looked like, and in fact, being criticized then by Americans for being too progressive, and right, uh, which is which was really fascinating. And then, um, Garrett, anti communism, yeah,
0: anti-communism. <laughs> yeah, I <know. laughs>
1: fascinating. yeah, I know that that's the fascinating thing. I mean, he is he's not a he's not a he's certainly not a communist. I mean, he certainly had leftist leanings, especially when talk about ideas about economics, but there no way. I mean, I don't think anyone today would argue that he was a leftist. Back then, of course, you know, um, uh, if you had those ideas, uh, you would be automatically labeled a leftist. There wasn't much nuance back then. So, uh, but yeah, he wasn't a leftist at all. But Mark Mullins really does a good job of really showing how he um, struggled with trying to... Spread his message about Christian social activism in the United States. Um, Garrett Washington, Gregory Vanderbilt uh, provide very interesting, very interesting analysis about um, how Christianity informed Japanese nationalism um, by looking at you know uh, the sermons uh, read out by um, pastors in in uh, Meiji Japan, Taisho Japan, um, and then we not only Japan but then we have a number of articles on China. Um, Joseph Lee's article is a real fascinating article. I you know Joseph is he's a professor at uh, Pace University I think in New York and his article is fascinating looking how basically um, these Christian, leaders, business leaders, political leaders, leaders in general were creating these new networks and how these networks then start circulating ideas, practices, uh, informs new identities and it really shows how Christianity was not necessarily something that was just in the realm of religion. It was doing something social, it was doing something cultural, it was doing something political. so that his his article is just absolutely uh, fascinating and then Caroline Chen talking about how um uh, how uh what role basically um the church the christian church uh played in the lives of taiwanese americans um, typically of giving them some form of assistance and so forth um, to these uh, immigrants who just arrived in America, um, but then she does it in a very interesting way. She looks at how you know these these Taiwanese Christians were often practicing Buddhists in Taiwan, and then they come here, and then they um, they turn to Christianity. And so she explains the the, the turn and the reasons why um, Christianity was more popular amongst the uh, Taiwanese American circles more so than um, Buddhism so um so you have that uh, talking about Taiwan as well as Taiwanese America and then finally David Olmby's article um is just a really fascinating article looking at Christianity today how Christianity is represented in the media uh, the Chinese media um, you know, what type of role does Christianity have in China today? So he gives basic information about uh, Christianity under communism today. Um, but I think the real fascinating thing about his article is looking at um, how these Chinese American groups um, start these organizations and try to influence the way Christianity is going to be played out in China. Um, and as you know, you know there are you know, millions of followers of Christianity. Actually, no one has an exact number because there's that right. underground church, and then there's the official church. And so there's these. David really shows well how these Chinese Americans, who are really well funded, really well funded, um, use their power and resources to try to um, influence the way Christianity is going to look in China. And you know that's really important because. Uh, as 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 I said a second ago, there are millions of followers of Christianity in China, and they um are starting to express their opinions uh one way or the other, and there will be a major influence in um chinese society um so Uh, David really does a good job of showing how things are just playing out and what types of influences are affecting all these processes going on in China today.
0: Well, well for our listeners, as you can can hear, this is just a really uh, fascinating collection of articles. It has so much scope. There's really something for everyone um, in this collection. I think whether you're a specialist in in Asia, whether you're a specialist in Christianity, uh, I think you can get a lot from this. One, uh, there were two questions I wanted to ask um, if it's all right before we move on to the sure. introduction. Sure. One thing I find fascinating, just uh, just for our listeners, is kind of background. I, uh, Dr. Park and I are both Koreans, um, or as well, you said, you're an intellectual historian, but we tend to focus on Korea. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I focus on Catholicism, right, uh, in Korea, and Dr. Park's focused on Protestant Christianity. And so, one thing I thought was interesting that the the your in, the introduction made clear was that the focus of this work is on protestant christianity and so i was curious if you could let our listeners know i mean why this focus on protestant christianity
1: yeah so that's a great question <laughs> let me just tell you right off the bat this is in no way trying to devalue catholicism in um in the history of christianity and
0: of course of course no no i
1: mean i, I mean it's it's kind of the as you know, because you know you're a specialist in the area, when people just talk about Christianity, they, they automatically just assume, right? Uh,
0: yeah. Protestant- are you Catholic? or Are you Christian? <laughs> yeah, right. So exactly is the question.
1: Yeah, and you know, Catholicism is this kind of thing that had existed early on, and in the 19th, 18th century, you know, it, it went under severe, it was severely repressed, of course, and. And then it, it was always there, but what do you do with it? How do you study it? And and um, the field, of course, in the United States, well, outside and inside of Korea, is really focused just on Protestant Christianity. Um, just because, I would say, um, well, in part, um, as you know, I mean, a lot of, the churches, a lot of Christians themselves in Korea, um, Protestant Christians, um, are kind of the energy behind the study of Christianity. So, in some right. ways, they, you know, naturally or more purposefully, de-emphasize Catholicism because it's in, it's in, it's it's. To their advantage, to emphasize, of course, Protestant Christianity over Catholicism. So, um, so I, which I think is really unfortunate because, um, you know, Catholicism first came to Korea. It wasn't Protestant Christianity, and um, Catholicism has informed many ideas, practices, structures uh, in the history, in the modern history of of Korea, and. As you know very well, because you wrote the piece for cNN <laughs> uh, you know the Pope's recent visit i mean uh, was was uh, i think a fantastic visit in this in the sense that it really showed you the power of Catholicism today and why Catholicism is actually more popular in some circles um, than christianity right it, it's in some ways not as tainted you know as many of these Evangelical churches in Korea are, are going have experienced a lot of troubles over the years, but Catholicism has actually had a very um, has a very nice image, and so and the Pope's arrival and then seeing the Pope doing all these things uh, really showed you how much value Catholicism has today. But nevertheless, um, why I didn't focus or David and I didn't focus about Catholicism is one. Um, I think I, I I felt a little uncomfortable personally uh, focusing on Catholicism. I I don't have much of a background in Catholicism, certainly like on your level, and um, so my expertise was on Protestant Christianity. And um, I don't know as much about Catholicism in China and Japan, although of course in both countries as well, they're very strong very historically, very strong Catholic movements. Um, and so I think it was in part just my own um specialty because I just knew Protestant Christianity um better, uh simply put, um, that I decided I was just gonna focus on Protestant Christianity. Um so I think that's the, the simplest answer. It's not in any way to, sh- to devalue uh, the, oh, sure. yeah, the absence. So oh, I know, I know, I know I know you're not thinking that, but Uh, Certainly, it's not to devalue. I just want to make clear it's never to devalue Catholicism. Um, It was just what I was more comfortable with doing. Um, And um, if we, it would have been interesting if I had an article or two on Catholicism. um, But because I had a specific focus, Right. I I wanted to keep it kind of tight, and then bringing the catharsis may have made the uh, the conference and the book a little unruly. So just for logistical reasons, that's why we right. really focus on catharsis But but it's of course something that should be studied, and it's studied very well by people like you. So
0: thank you. Well, I, I and what. Also, a lot of our listeners will be specialists in Christianity, not Korea and and East Asia, and I wanted to kind of get that out there because, at least from my perspective looking at this book, and what what it makes me think of is how much more comfortable Protestant Christians are with modernity than Catholics are. Mm. Um, And it makes sense to me to focus just on Protestant Christianity in a sense, because at least what I'm seeing here is that there's a lower level of discomfort. Uh, There was really a struggle in... um, in East Asian Catholic churches, about modernity, and it was often seen as really, really a negative thing.
1: Right, right.
0: Um, to a degree that when I look at Protestant Christians um, uh, in Korea, Japan, and China, I just don't get that sense. Right, right, right. I just wanted to get that out there for our, our listeners. So, thank you. And my other question I thought was really interesting about the treatment of Protestant Christianity in this this book is that so much of the time when people talk about religion now, we talk about we talk in plurals. We talk about Islams rather than Islam and uh, Buddhisms and Christianities. But this introduction treated this. It was interesting. Would say some things like the Protestant and referred to how this particular religion influenced. I thought it was very interesting, rather than the plural. So I just, in this sense, what kind of Protestant Christianity has it allows it to be treated in this unified way in terms of modernity.
1: Yeah, you know, actually, I, Frank, I couldn't hear some of your question because the microphone was going in and out. Can you just,
0: well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, what I'm interested in, what I think is and we often talk about religion in terms of plurals. People will say Christianities, right. Buddhisms, right. Islams. And this work tends to treat uh Christianity, Protestant Christianity kind of a singular. So say the Protestant Christian Church, for example. Right, right. And I just was curious, what is it that allows us to treat Protestant Christianity in its relationship with modernity in this unified way?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. Well let me put I mean I, I would say first of all that you know when we talk about Protestant Christianity, or at least in this book uh, we didn't want to give off this impression that um, that there was only one way to talk about Protestant Christianity, of course, that there's a unified, one singular way to talk about Protestant Christianity. In fact, the book is trying to really show the diversity of, of, of Protestant Christianity. Um, but if you look at historically in China, Japan, and Korea let's say since uh, the middle to the late 19th century when you have the rise of modernity and you have these visions of modernity being um, how do you say, being carried out in these modernization programs. Um, what was very interesting uh, within China, Japan and Korea, of course, were these uh, native leaders, so Chinese Christian leaders, Japanese Christian leaders, and Korean Christian leaders, talking about Christianity and modernity in a very similar way? And the way they talked about Christianity and modernity was, um, in part, I think, the influence of from the influence of missionaries, but of course. Uh, They had their own ideas, but nevertheless, they talked about Christianity as a fundamental feature of any modern civilization, of of any civilized country. You have to have Christianity. So, um, sure, you have to have capitalism, for example, industrial capitalism. You have to have uh, a democracy, a representative democracy. You have to have, let's say... Um, cities, urbanization um, universal education, stuff that you would find in the West but those are just material things that that's what these leaders would say and that, what missionaries would say the same thing too in China, Japan and Korea, those, those were just material developments but that's th- those weren't material developments that allowed for these Western countries to become civilized and enlightened what what um, what allowed for these countries to be civilized enlightenment was exactly Christianity. It was these beliefs, it was these ideas, it was the spirit of Christianity that drove people, uh, men and women, to um, create these new things, to make progress in the political, economic, and social cultural realm, um, to have progress in general. And so I think, historically speaking, there is this very amongst these Chinese, Japanese, uh, Korean Christian leaders a very similar idea of thinking about how uh, their how Protestant Christianity's Protestant Christianity's relationship to modernity. Now, um, I have problems with that. I think there were a number of Koreans, Japanese. Chinese leaders, Christian leaders, who were very critical of that idea about modernity, uh, meaning that you have to have these certain norms um, to become modern. Um, so they're very critical of those people that I just talked about in a second, who very, right. you know, idea of civilization, enlightenment, equal, and Christianity. They go hand in hand. Um, you know, what I study in my book, and it And it alludes to a little bit at the end of my article, it talks about, well, you know, there were these Korean Christian leaders who were very critical of industrial capitalism, who were very critical of urbanization, uh, very critical of the various other material things under modernity, the material features of modernity, and um, proposed alternative visions of modernity. so uh, so then they went on to then uh, carry out these uh, alternative plans for a modern society which you know my book looks at trying to build um, an agrarian society, a strong countryside um, you know deemphasize industrialization um, and so forth um, but back to your original, question why we can talk about in the singular, at least historically speaking, is, is exactly because how Christianity manifested and was played out in the late 19th century with the rise of modernization modernity in these three countries. The, there was a distinct leadership group in all three countries within Christian circles that were saying Christianity and modernity go hand in hand. So that's why I would talk about it in the singular way. Um, And it's very interesting that in all three countries you saw very similar ideas about uh, Christianity and modernity. But you know, in the end, Protestant Christianity, of course, is very, very diverse. And so that's what the book really wanted to try to show is that there is a diversity to Protestant Christianity that's very critical modernity, but they're not anti-modern. You know. Right. Uh, So. Uh
0: Yeah, that's I really. This is uh, this is so fascinating to me, and I uh, and as your as is your answer, and, and for our um, our listeners also, if you're not familiar with these documents, I mean, this is in a sense, this language is reflecting how the people at the time talked about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the reality, like I, I find it fascinating, the Comity Agreement, right? That. Um, in Korea, these various Protestant missionaries, uh, the me- various Methodists and Presbyterians actually divided up the country <laughs> and said, we, we will work in this area and you can work in this area. So that showed it, they thought of a kind. Con- right. Fine. Well, if if it's all right, I'd like to move on to your article then. Sure. Um, uh, it's the first chapter, A Sacred Economy of Value and Production, mm-hmm. Capitalism and Protestantism in Early Modern Korea, 1885 to 1919. Well, could you tell us a little bit about about your article? Sure. Um,
1: So the article started off as a conference paper uh, for the Association of Asian Studies annual conference. It was in Atlanta almost, uh, I would say, in 2008, 2009. I think that's the first time I met you, actually.
0: Yeah, I heard your paper.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Very good. so I, I I wrote it for a panel that looked at um I think Christianity. Um I, I forgot the panel, but I remember the panel was organized by Michael Shin, Michael Shin who's now at uh, Cambridge University. So he asked me to participate and you know, I was I was of course very happy to be invited to this panel, but I was thinking, what can I write on? And Right on something that not, not necessarily that I've, that I've done already in my dissertation. So I have to admit at that time, so this is around 2007, 2008, I was very interested in prosperity gospel uh, in America, um, particularly okay. how it was being talked about in um, contemporary evangelical circles in the United States. Um, I just remember watching CNN, reading various articles, people always talking about prosperity gospel, and then always referring to to these pastors about how they would talk about money, how they would talk about wealth, and and so forth, and um, it got me to thinking, well, how did the early Protestant Christian Church, so early on meaning late 19th century up until let's say 1910, so since um, the arrival of Horace Underwood Eppenzeller in the 1880s up until 1910, how was Christianity talking about money? How was it talking about work? How was it talking about um, things that we, we associate with the economy? Right, um, production, and so forth. How were they talking about it, and, and not only how were they talking about it, um, well then, were they talking about it in certain ways that was creating new forms of value, new forms of production? And then, do these new forms of value and new forms of production, did they inform new practices? new economic practices essentially, Uh, new economic practices that would lead to new types of organization among Korean Christians, economic organization. And this organization would facilitate new types of social relationships. So I really wanted to investigate uh, seriously how uh, pastors were just talking about these economic things. And if it did then have impact on economic trends, processes, um, structures, as well as social trends, social structures, social processes, and identities, of course. So I just started to read out more about what pastors were talking about in their sermons and also talking about um, the uh, uh, the nevius, uh, uh plan. To um, proselytization. Um, How, if that plan specifically was calling for Koreans to be self reliant, and self reliant also means to be independent financially. Um, You have to have a church that could support itself, it can't rely on um, missionary funds to sustain itself over the long term. So I started to see that um, they were talking about money in a very interesting way. They were talking about money as something that has productive value, something that's um, not magical in some sense, but it actually has, if you do certain things to make money, um, it will lead to other things. But particularly, it will lead to uh, the development of the church uh, the development of missionary activities, it would essentially lead to more um, spiritual growth, growth of Christianity. Which got me to start thinking, and that's when you, know, you see in my article where you know these sermons, the nevius plan, and there are comments about money. We're producing, I think, a new value of money, which then we're leading to these Christian followers to think about money in a totally different way. Money as something as, that has real spiritual value. Um, and because it has spiritual value, then they should work hard to make a lot of money. Right. Which then informs, um, you know, their economic practices, their economic organization, economic structures. Um, so essentially, they, you know, I, I I use this one formula, of course, by Marx: MCM, money, commodity, money, where basically you make money, um, invest it in something, um, try to create something, sell it, meaning. Uh, that something as a commodity so that you can make more money. Um, and then ultimately this money has its value because it's going to uh, fulfill some spiritual purpose. And so you really saw this discussion of money um, frequently in sermons, in yeah. everyday life, I think, in late 19th century uh, Korea, within the church, uh, within Christian educational centers and so forth. We're saying, "Well." Go out and make money. And it's okay to make money. That's the key thing. When, and as you know, I mean, within Catholicism, there's always the same discussion where, you know, religious figures and followers have a very, very, wary relationship with money. Because, um, because you have in some circles people saying, well, money will corrupt you. Because as you make more money, you'll become more selfish, more self-centered. You'll become essentially more materialistic, which will distance you from God uh, and distance you from any spiritual forces. So there is always within the church, the Protestant church, there's always this few figures that say, "Oh, money has this kind of corrosive effect," and so. You know, for let's say an industrialist who happens to go to church, right, or a very wealthy person who goes to church, they don't, I don't think they like hearing that. I mean, right. <laughs> they're making money. I mean, so and then they're being told this it has a corrosive effect. Well, so I would imagine, and I, I used to see it in late 19th century church where. You see these wealthy Korean landlords, these wealthy Korean farmers who are making money because, you know, capitalism is evolving and developing, which you saw since 15th, 16th century. But it was evolving even more in, in, the, in the 19th century where it was leading to uh, yangban landowners and uh, farmers and peasants uh, accumulating wealth. And they just so happen to go to church because they're very attracted to the messages of Christianity. Um, And so what ends up happening is, I argue, is that they hear these messages about money, um, about money having a new value, a value creating, um, essentially having spiritual value. And I think in some ways these messages, uh, sermons, um, somehow legitimize what these business people farmers, people who have wealth are doing. So that it kind of then um, puts aside their kind of wary or, or their uh, problematic relationship with money. Now money for them is something that they can make uh, can accumulate they can accumulate wealth, wealth not for themselves but for the church. And so like, I have one excerpt where there is this one land wealthy person asking how he can help the church and the church basically saying you can make more money. And I would argue that this was somehow then legitimizing what um, this person was doing in terms of accumulating wealth, which is no different than what was happening in Japan, which was happening in, G- in China. and. Um, I was while I was writing this paper for the conference, I was inspired by um, uh, Tetsu Najita. Tetsu Najita was one of my teachers at Chicago, and you know he 's one of the most well known professors of Japanese intellectual history, and he wrote a book on the Kaidokudo merchants. Um, I forgot the name of the book right now um, but it, the Kaidokudo merchants were these merchants in Tokugawa, Japan who were um, doing a really good job of being merchants. You know, they were doing a good job in the sense of of, um, circulating products, making sure products go from here and there, uh, making sure that people got the right products. And in doing so, they made money, right? And what was happening in this Kaidokudo Academy was um, there was new teachings basically telling these merchants that um, them making money has a purpose, it's not a purpose to enrich themselves, it had a purpose, a social purpose, a national purpose, Um, a purpose that just wasn't about the individual or for the individual. Um, That their money is going to be used to increase national wealth, to increase national prosperity, um so what was happening in the Kaitokudo Academy was you were having these messages um, that were legitimizing what these merchants were doing. So I would argue that was the same thing happening within the Korean church. It was really legitimizing um people's accumulation of wealth. These these people who were acquiring all this new wealth, you know. So um so yeah, so essentially um, looking at how these new production, the production of new values of money, uh, values of wealth um, for sacred purposes were being produced. Um, I was very interested in that. So that's what my article tries to do. At least the first part tries to do. And in some ways, then I would argue that this lays the groundwork for capitalism in some ways. It's, it's, it's um, motivating some type of production for profit. And production for profit, of course, just not for the sake of material wealth, but for the sake of um, um, increasing the spirituality of Korea or spiritual purposes. So that's the first part. Now, the second part deals with this question of that missionaries had. As they're telling Koreans, you essentially have to make money. You should make money. And Uh, you should accumulate wealth for the church. Well, the question is, how do you do it? I mean, and there's a very pronounced, it's very, you could see it very clearly in missionary discourse. They were, a number of them were very much against farming as a form of labor to develop this wealth. What they instead saw, instead of farming was, they believed in um, industrialization. Uh, Koreans need to industrialize, they need to partake in industrial processes to accumulate wealth. And so what ends up happening is these missionaries um, essentially tried to train Korean Christians how to become industrialites or how to understand industrialization and they did so by creating these, these uh, educational programs called industrial education departments that were founded at many missionary schools. And essentially, these schools looked like factories. They set yeah. up uh, weaving looms, they set up um, machines to make shoes, um, and taught Koreans how to uh, manufacture um, goods and not only manufacture them, but how to sell them. Uh, right, right. And there was a couple of examples where then students were taking classes about how to become a good businessman, what does an industrial look like, um, and so forth. And so uh, what ends up happening is that these Koreans are being trained to believe that their future should be, should be, should rest upon the idea that they should develop industrial capitalism. The way that they should make wealth is through industrial capitalism. Um, And that's being really taught to them and I think really being inscribed on their minds and bodies in these industrial education departments, which interestingly enough are being funded by very wealthy industrialites from the United States. So um, that I didn't really go into much, but I did find many I did find some connection of these very wealthy industrialites in the United States, from Illinois, from the East Coast, providing this money, this for to make these factories, for these factories to teach Koreans how to become industrial industrialists. And so, so it's very interesting. You see the circulation of capital through um, church activities, through these missionary activities. Um, So the second part looks at how essentially how they're trying to develop them into strong industrial capitalists. And then in some ways, it kind of sets up my book in the sense that I do criticize these missionaries in the sense that they are training Koreans to think in only one single way. Because what ends up happening is that Korean Christians in the 20s and 30s start really criticizing industrial capitalism. They start criticizing the norms of modernity that have been taught to them by missionaries. Uh, right. So, so in that way, you see um, um, things shifting in the way the church responds to. Um, capitalism, industrial capitalism, but that happens in the 20s, and that's something I, I don't really discuss uh, in the article, but I I just bring that up in the
0: conclusion. Right. right. That, yes. Yeah, this whole thing was so fascinating to me, and um, I really, uh, the way that this article is written and the way you explained it is so very elegant, uh, how you kind of tie together all these, these uh, disparate issues. People who have not... Um, our audience who have not read much on Korean Christianity. One thing that makes this article and this whole collection so valuable is a different way of understanding uh, this material. So even though I before I read this article, I'd read a lot of them.
1: Oh, Frank, actually, I can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: can... Oh no, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I do apologize to our listeners. Um, I'm not sure what's going on with my microphone. It's worked well in the past, and it it's kind of acting funny now. Uh, can you hear me now? Okay. Yeah, I
1: can hear you now. That's fine.
0: Okay, one. I just was saying this was really an elegant uh, argument, very elegant article, and I think it's very important because we're used to thinking, as you point out, in terms of the nation, but this is showing how there's these kind of this economic transformation. And one thing I would just point out, as someone who studies pre-Catholicism, this at least during the time period was working really well. Protestants were so much better at raising money than Catholics, <laughs> um, and they had a much bigger budget to work with. So even though Catholics had a head start. Um, it was very quick that the Protestants were able to quickly to uh, catch up and then to surpass them. And, and to give an idea of this, I mean, this is long before this, but in eighteen 18- oh a Korean Catholic by the name of Alexius Wang So Young, as he was, as the Catholic Church was being persecuted, he was frustrated because they needed money mm-hmm. in order to try and keep the church going. And he wrote, you know, is it, can it be our fate that filthy mammon should be what we need to survive? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's very different from how the Protestants, um, as you show, are, are thinking of this.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the fascinating thing. I mean, I was just um, reading about how in the chosen society, how certain Buddhist groups were engaging in certain economic activities to bolster their temples, right, in the face right. of certain types of persecution by the chosen government. And so, what you see, as, as you're saying, in Catholicism, Buddhism, and Protestant Christianity, you see a number of these religious groups engaging in economic activities, which are clearly economic activities. Well, then, it's up to the historian, at least, or intellectual, to understand, historian, to understand. Well, where do these? How how are these practices? What is informing these practices? Right. What are the intellectual? What are the ideas? What are the beliefs? And um, if you go down to it, it's the way that Catholicism, Christianity, Buddhism, certain doctrines, certain texts were being interpreted interpreted, and then being shared to the followers, uh, which then informs their new practices and um, in engaging in these, these new economic practices. The other interesting thing I want to bring up, and you're um, alluding to it in your own comment about Catholicism is, you know, how these economic activities then lead to new forms of social organization. I mean, that's, that's the most fascinating part in which I deal with a little bit in the article where you have these uh, people in churches um, forming these new social organizations, right? Um, so they're, they're, they're creating some type of joint stock ownership a company um, they're creating a company that involves a number of people who have to pay certain stocks uh, invest in certain stock to be part of it and what ends up happening is that this becomes sure an economic organization but also comes a social organization because um, you have this um, people coming together and they start interacting with each other communicating with each other and what often you see is that they start talking about things other than this about the economy they talk about nationalism they talk about political right. and often the case is that there were Korean Christians who did use their economic organization as a way to resist japanese aggression right like ishun hun and so forth who wanted to develop these economic organizations as a way to challenge the Japanese capitalism, capital coming into the country, because he realized capitalism, Japanese capitalism, could make major disruptions, could influence Koreans in a in a in a, in a very easy way, and a way to um, kind of prevent the domination of Japanese capitalism is to increase Korean capital. So. That's the, I think, a really fascinating thing about how these economic organizations lead to new social organization, mediums of social, they're mediums for new social relationships, which really then goes to show you how valuable uh, Christianity was in some sense. Just like how leftist organizations, leftist organizations, right wing organizations, and so forth provided new forms of social organization, so did these. Christian organizations and Christian practices. So, um, again, it's really trying to show you um, how uh, how valuable these uh, religious organizations were in um, developing new things at that time.
0: Right. Well, that's that's one thing that I, I about this whole book is it's showing us how um, the study of Christianity isn't just about doctrine; it's also seen about society, economy, and politics. Now, we've taken a a lot of your time, but before I I let you go, I wanted to ask you um, a little bit about what you're working on now. That's our traditional question here at New Books Network.
1: So, yeah. um, So, what am I working on? Well, I am really no longer working on religion per se. Um, So, well, first, I'm, well, everything has been finished for my. book manuscript. So um, the book manuscript is um, entitled uh, Building a Heaven on Earth, Religion, Activism, and Protest in Japanese-Occupied Korea. Um, It's a book that's being published by University of Hawaii Press, and it should be out in January 2015, uh, hopefully, uh, or maybe February 2015. And the book is... uh, um, something that I started working on since um, grad school. It's essentially, it's my um, the basis of it is my dissertation, and it's exactly what I talked about earlier in our discussion about the rise, uh, the origins of social activism in Korea in relation to modernity, and how basically Do-gyo and Protestant Christian figures um, reconceptualize. Traditional doctrines in a way that would encourage social activism, social activism that would counter or deal with the effects of modernity on people's lives, particularly the rise of capitalism. Um, And at that time, um, there was, in most religious circles, there was um, um, kind of, there were figures who were very much against religious followers. Performing any type of social activism. And so the figures that I study are really arguing against that and saying that it's very important to be socially active um, And socially active in the sense of trying to create a new world a world where there's economic equality political quality social equality um, And de-emphasizing and then what they're trying to do is trying to de-emphasize proselytization. the role of a religious figure is to basically to save human lives physically speaking um, not necessarily just to save their spiritual lives, um, and then they go off and start building these uh, ideal modern agrarian communities that are anchored by Danish cooperatives. So, so that's 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 the book. It's 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 um it should be out next year. Now the project I'm working on next is tentatively entitled. Designing and Building Utopia, uh, Culturally Reconstructing Democracy in Contemporary South Korea Through Architecture, Design, and Food. And um, this book is basically looking at how democracy, the thought and practice of it, has evolved in Korea since the 1990s when you had the rise of neoliberalism. So essentially, um, the 1990s, was uh, I think a transitionary period for democracy. You know, since in 1988, you had the achievement of let's say political democracy, people's right to vote, um, the right to um, elect their president representatives. Um, that type of right was secured. Um, and so in the 1990s, people were starting to wonder well, what's next about democracy? And what ends up happening is that question is being asked very uh, urgently by certain people because you have the rise of neoliberalism, neoliberalism, which is causing, in my opinion, um, uh, gross inequality, um, poverty, um, serious economic issues um, that threaten any type of political democracy, equality in political democracy. Essentially the argument is how can you have a, a political democracy based on equality if you don't have economic equality and certainly you weren't seeing that under neoliberalism. And so the way I wanted to approach the way people were talking about democracy was not necessarily through the standard way of looking at movements, protest movements against the state and so forth. I wanted to look at it in a different way. I wanted to look at through culture. So I wanted to look through architecture. Uh, design and food movements and so food movements in particular looking at agricultural cooperatives how they try to reconceptualize democracy through their organic food movements um, and in these organic food movements you do see them emphasizing political and economic equality trying to transform political conditions as well economic conditions they are really the ones arguing that in order to have true democracy, you have to have economic equality. What I find interesting in architecture is architects starting to talk about how do we reconceptualize space in a way to make it more democratic. Um, And particularly I'm interested in those architects who are interested who really pay attention to economic issues, how economic issues are causing certain types of inequality, and then seeing how they address that inequality through their work. So there's various architects that I've studied have tried to address rural inequality, looking at poverty in the, in the countryside and trying to not only trying to create better buildings for these farmers, but also new infrastructure, information, educational infrastructure that would raise their standard of living. And somehow then that would inform their, uh, level of political activism, um, so that's architecture. And then design, I'm particularly interested in that area, looking how designers um, approach gender inequality. Um, as, we, as many political theorists would argue, uh, you can't have democracy without gender equality. And we often know in the design world, products are made that uh, emphasize gender inequality, and I'm really conscious of that because I have a daughter and I could see that in everyday life. Um, So how are designers approaching that? How are they trying to make different designs um, to address uh, gender inequality, trying to overcome gender inequality? But not only um, gender inequality issues, but also how do you create designs to... Uh, create a better world. So this is uh, a line of design called social design, social activism design, where you create products somehow to address economic inequality. Um, So make better products for people who can then use them that will enhance their economic lives. Um, or enhance um, any uh, their any type of their lives that would then allow them to become stronger political subjects um and then interesting enough, through my research assistant, I found out that in Seoul, for example, there's this new uh, wave of design called participatory design, where you have people or any individuals participate in the design process of like making a bus stop, making a um, designing a uh, public space, and the hope is that they participate in this process uh, with the idea of becoming committed to the democratic process of 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 of, um, of um, building a better world, essentially building a better society, um, and so forth. So um it's it's still the early stages, as you can tell it's some of my ideas are kind of um, not fully developed, but essentially, I do want to look at uh alternative conceptions and practices of design in contemporary Korea.
0: Those sound like two very uh uh projects and i'm hoping especially maybe we can get you on again to talk about the the first one uh There may be another new books network project uh that would be interested in the second um well, thank you so much for your time today. This was real, um, and uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yes. And uh, take care, and have a good day.
1: Oh well, no, th- I really, Frank, I really appreciate you having me on, and um, it's the first time I've done this type of format. So, uh, Love me too. <laughs> um, I- I'm glad I was able to do it with you because uh, you're a very. Uh, uh, comfortable host, so it, it was. Uh, it was very good talking with you, as always.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Okay, this has been New Books in Christian Studies. Thank you for your kind attention, and see you later.